Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey folks, welcome back to OMD Daily. It's June 3rd, 2020. And what do I have for you today? Well, today is not a company-specific learning. Um, I hope you enjoyed my podcast yesterday with, um, not with, but about Workday. Um Today was a day kind of filled with some meetings, so that kind of threw a wrench into, you know, the amount of deep work I generally need to be able to go through annual reports and kind of solidify my thoughts. And so it's been a hodgepodge of listening. I think I've listened to something about mm, four to five different podcast episodes today, all the while um, still reading my book for an hour every day. Um, And... I think overall, nothing really kind of really came to mind in terms of sharing those learnings. Um, the book I'm kind of holding off on, there's so much that I'm learning from reading The Monk of Mocha. Uh, just completely a lot of in-depth looks into the coffee industry, the history. It's just awesome. Uh, I'm really loving the book. But that will come at a later date when I actually do a full book note. I hope I can get on top of that schedule. But today, I think I figured I'd share a learning I had from reading the 2019 Q3 um, investor letter by Michael Shearns, who runs the Money Compound Fund. If this name does ring a bell, it might be because you've possibly read read his book or even maybe heard about the book called The Investment Checklist. It's a book that I used um, early on in my investing career career as a you know kind of like a tool it was like a guide during my investment process you know i think many value investors sooner or later build a process that includes this long checklist and even when i worked at um at a fund we kind of had a whole kind of checklist approach as well and a lot of my colleagues had their own checklist checklist and i'd kind of mishmash it together and continuously have this giant 200 point checklist that i'd continuously try to whittle down but yeah, so that's kind of who Michael Schurns is. And I first learned about Michael, um, just, I didn't really know much about his investing background. I just knew he wrote the book, The Investment Checklist. And then I learned later on, uh, or more recently that he, I think he recommended people don't read the book or kind of ignore a lot of the things he wrote there because his style as an investor had shifted uh, I think quite dramatically since he had written um, the book. So I thought that was pretty refreshing to uh, hear. I, th- I think it might have been dr- during his Motley Fool uh, interview where he kind of s- talks about that, or it might have been on Reddit because he also had a um, Ask Me Anything on Reddit as well. But he's what the impression I got is that he's a really transparent guy, and I think he's the first investor I read about who has a a similar approach to investing as I do, the whole idea of investing in people. And 
I think he's the closest person I know, um, at least in the institutional money managing world that actually does that. Like he's the only person I know who cares about finding mission driven founders who believes in the value of building a culture that retains top talent employees, the value of um, not hiring people who just want the best pay, but actually hiring people who will go above and beyond because they believe in the mission of the company, because they have a special purpose of their own that they're enacting, like an intrinsically driven motivator of why they're at the job and how the leader's uh, role is also to not only be the visionary, but the um, builder who builds an organizational structure that allows this to foster and actually get incentivized. So if all this sounds woo woo to you, I don't know why you've been listening to my podcast because that's the kind of stuff I love talking about. But this is the kind of refreshing stuff that I love to read about. And when I got my hands on um, Michael's 2019 Q3 investor letter, I saved it for that moment when I could just sit down and digest it and pull some learnings out of it and that's what i'm going to do for you today so this is probably one i would say it's going to be one of my core uh investor letters that i continuously refer to because it's it looks at michael's kind of six criteria um for an analyzing companies and i figured i kind of go over the six criteria points with you today through this interview um and kind of share my thoughts in in it as well so when Michael looks at his companies, um, there's really six. So the six criteria are one, solving an important customer problem. Uh, is the company solving an important customer problem? Um, two, words and actions match. Three, motivated by mastery and service to others, not money or prestige. Four, competent leader, architect and builder. Five, proven and stable business model. Six, compounder, ability to invest free cash flow back into the business at rates of return in excess of 20%. So I'll talk about the first one first. Uh, so solving an important customer problem. Basically, why does this business exist? And Michael talks about the how he defines what is considered an important problem. And importance is determined by whether the problem is meaningful to a large group. And there is, I think, the popular discussion that niches, niches get riches. I think that's the saying from Scott, um, the awesome investment writer Scuttle Blurb. So kind of shout out to you if you're listening to this podcast. That would be amazing. But um, Michael's actually going the other way and saying the company should be addressing a problem that is meaningful to an extremely large group because that's the kind of group you need to be able to have this long runway to compound growth and like his fund name the money compound fund he only invests in compounders and so the example he gives is how shopify solves the back-end function for just entrepreneurs everywhere although it is still focused on e-commerce entrepreneurs but entrepreneurs are a much wider network than compared to square which solves a particular payment acceptance problem for fund-facing retailers which is a much smaller target market than Shopify's is. So those are the kind of two comparisons that Michael gives. Um, in, also, in addition to kind of understanding or kind of elaborating on how or how the uh, company solves an important customer problem, he talks about whether kind of using the idea of whether this, co- this company will be missed if it were to disappear. Like if Shopify were to disappear off the face of the earth, 
how much trouble would their customers be in? Is there like an immediate substitute that you can latch onto, or is there going to be a lot of um, difficulty on the customers then? So this is a difference of whether the product is actually a need versus a nice to have. And so you obviously want to lean towards products that are needs where there is a strong um, value proposition that is being addressed by the customer uh, for the customer. And this also goes into how the products are actually sold. If this product is sold through kind of word of mouth and it's kind of grown organically, then it also probably indicates that it's serving this unmet need. Like there's this pent up demand for it compared to products that have to be quote unquote sold to people by salespeople. When you have to sell someone something, it probably doesn't mean, it probably means that they really don't need it. And the example is kind of like, you know, Coca-Cola where they have to use elaborate marketing um, strategies to be fancy and try to make all these psychological tricks and hacks to hook you in. And that's probably a product that no one actually needs. And it's not solving any important um, problem at all. And so that's kind of one way to look at it. Um, What else did he talk about? Something else he also alludes to. And a lot of what I also love about Michael is that Although the six of the six criteria is easily fifty half of them are uh, management and culture related, even the parts that are more business model focused, it can really kind of um, trace back to the leaders because you know how do you know if this is an important customer problem? Well, Michael's recommends it. look at what the CEO talks about, what does management talk about in their shareholder letters and earnings calls and interviews? Do they constantly talk about solving customer problems? Like are they even leaders who live and breathe it, like were they actual product people or was the CEO like a marketing and sales guy who probably never actually experienced any of the problems before and was only obsessed about hitting targets and numbers. Um, Even when they talk about the actual products, do they get obsessed about monetization or do they focus on value prop? Do they always focus on, you know, financial metrics and selling more or is it about helping the end users and the customers thrive. So those are kind of aspects to consider when you're consider asking yourself the question of, does this business solve an important customer problem? Then the criteria number two, words and actions match. So this is about the trustworthiness of a leader. Um, you know, do the words and actions of the leader match? Um, are they actually walking the talk, as they say? And I think there's so many ways to look at this, but um, some ways that Michael talks about is the question is like, does management share things that they don't have to share? Um, think obvious ones are like mistakes. Does management own up to it? But at the same time, do they bring up mistakes that they've made and they don't, they sh- didn't have to share any of this, but they actually openly do. Like how I think the Atlassian CEOs like talk about how sometimes they have no idea what they're doing. And that's, that can be really scary to admit to your investors, but that's a very honest and genuine thing. And it's all about how management kind of presents themselves as someone who's actually very comfortable in their own shoes and who's actually someone you can uh, potentially trust. Like, are they people that have integrity? And do they say things and uh, share the things that show that as an example? And one thing could also be in like how incentives are aligned. Like, management could potentially give you the impression that, oh yeah, we have a lot of equity, so we're aligned. But 
some companies like apparently Carvana uh, and Shake Shack, for example, have various kind of schemes inside their proxies and prospectuses that give the insiders discounts on the equity ownership and get a lot of tax breaks, which is kind of unfair from a shareholder's point of view. So there's this kind of misalignment, even in equity ownership. So then that makes you wonder, is this management actually trustworthy? Are they actually shareholder oriented? Because it doesn't seem so. And other things could be like, yeah, how do they even talk? Um, Michael gives a reference to Toby Luke of Shopify, where when Toby was asked uh, what Shopify did, he said, we help you start an online retail business on your lunch hour. Like that's simple. You can understand that. That That's no corporate lawyer talk. Um, but the more management talks that way and the more they try to hide details, that probably shows you that they're probably not very trustworthy. I mean, you, would, you wouldn't trust them to be a, your friend. Like I personally don't. Like when I have friends who are very kind of shy about sharing details and say, oh yeah, like I'm, you know, like you'll, you'll find out later on or they're kind of cagey about, you know, things that do about their career or what they're doing. I just remember I just never want to really relate with them. And yeah, I think that should be reflected in the management team as well. Criteria three, motivated by mastery and service to others, not money or prestige. It's it's kind of like the Simon Sinek version of their why. Are they driven by their why and their motivation? And what Buffett talks about as, you know, people that are driven by an intrinsic scorecard. Like it's a tough ordeal. Um, what I learned from my journey is that it's really hard to live very in like an introspective manner to really do something with an intrinsic scorecard point of view. Um, I struggle with it even every day. Like I've even going on this journey for the last two years, it's still been a challenge to continuously stick to what I believe intrinsically matters. And I think this is something important um, in founders and it's important in the leaders that run the company. Like you, I think it's a very crucial thing to keep in mind to, um, when you're evaluating the leadership. Like, are the leaders committed to becoming the best at what they do? Do they actually want to seek mastery, the thing that you can never achieve, but you spend your entire life trying to achieve it? Are they committed to creating an environment where employees can become the best people um, they can possibly be? Like, I call that the path to self-mastery. You can never achieve it, but that's that's what you want to s- strive for. And are the leaders creating that kind of environment? Um, other things to consider is, is the business leader going to run the business for the rest of their life? Like, does it appear like, you know, Toby's going to run Shopify for the rest of his life? I'd probably say, yeah. I think he'd probably be in Shopify longer than any CEO of any bank out there. Um, do I think Mark Zuckerberg's going to run Facebook for the rest of his life? I think so. Like, I think... If I think about current examples, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are the clearest examples of CEOs I want to have, people who are going to run their business for the rest of their lives until they die. And that's kind of what you want. Um, leaders who are obsessed with mastery, just the continuous pursuit of getting better. And some telltale signs of them not probably going down that route is if they sell off their stock ownership in the business. Um, Michael references how when he looked at uh, Guidewire, which is an insurance ERP company, um, its CEO, Marcus Ryu, was selling down its his stake um, since 2012 all the way till 2019. And while he was doing that, he was telling investors that 
he was in the business for the long term. Well, if you're constantly selling down your equity stake in the company for a five to ten year period, probably doesn't indicate that. Um, so that's where there's a misalignment right there, and someone who's probably not motivated to stay long term. Um, yeah, something else that Michael actually mentions in the report uh, in his letter that I'd like to talk about is. So this is a quote, we have passed on many businesses simply because the leaders said they are focused on maximizing shareholder value in a shareholder letter of the annual report. This also refers to um, an example of a leadership that could actually be extrinsically motivated, um, who's not focused on mastery, who's just all about setting targets and objectives and obsessive KPIs, the Jack Welch approach. Um, like I personally don't think Jack Welch is actually a good CEO. I don't know why people think he was. He was very short-term oriented and he didn't actually leave a sustainably great business behind with a good culture. I think it was all kind of shit, really. So that kind of also show, showcases what kind of management um, the CEOs might be if they talk about Jack Welch, if they talk about constantly hitting KPIs. They might be very extrinsically motivated. And it's also a really good practice um, to look at who the CEO actually admires, who do they talk about, um, who are their role models. And that can give kind of impressions of how they think plan to lead the company in the future. Criteria number four, competent leader. Architect, aka visionary, and builder, aka doer. Um, Michael believes that the competent leader needs to be a mix of a visionary and doer because first you need the visionary side to actually build an inspiring company to attract high um, top tier talent and retain them also so that the company can continue to grow and compound um, but it all starts with a visionary leader someone who can actually have this inspiring vision behind the company that everyone can kind of uh, I guess collectively what's the word get around to but yeah you gather around with you know you know what I'm referring to and not only does the leader have to do that to attract the talent, but he needs to continuously like push the agenda further so that people can continuously think about doing purpose-driven work. And this goes fur further than just a vision alone, but the vision to actually create this entire ecosystem that can actually be a win-win relationship. Like, do you create a company that is an added value, a value add to the entire ecosystem? Does it help suppliers does it help um the customers does it help the employees does everybody win as a result of your company existing it's like what Con um john mckay of whole foods talked about in his book conscious capitalism it's the system of allowing everyone to win and uh, another investor i love uh reading about stephen uh green greenwood of greenwood investors talks about this a lot conscious capitalism inside organizations so i think those are kind of important traits to consider for a visionary leader. And it's also kind of take it even a step further to look at even examining culture. Like how does culture incentivize employees to go the extra mile? Like do they build a company that's focused on hiring people who just want 10% raises and who join the company just to get more money? Or is it about people who would rather get paid less to do work that's actually more meaningful? Do they fire people who are disruptive? AKA the people who are extrinsically motivated. Like I would never really hire anyone who just wanted a lot of money. I think those kinds of people are the worst kinds of people to really hire, which also makes me believe 
that most um, consulting companies are probably pretty bad businesses. I never would actually invest in a consulting company, um, at least the top tier ones, because of, I think, the toxic cultures that exist in many of them and the kind of people that they attract. I've never really been a big fan, per se. Um, and the other things that Michael talks about is to examine like executive turnover because the visionary founders or the leader's ability to attract top executives and also retain them is one thing, but also who, who does he bring in? Like the executives are, and the senior le- leadership team are an example of the kind of people that are attracted. And so you can understand the kind of message that the founder might be selling um, in these kind of behind the door conversations. So examine like where did the executive team work beforehand? Are most hires um, or are most people in senior positions groomed internally and promoted from inside? Or are they all these mercenaries who are just kind of jumping around looking for a higher paycheck? Do they come from organizations that have really toxic cultures? Like when I was examining Workday yesterday, um, something I, I don't know if I talked about is that some executive members all come from Oracle. Part of me thinks, well, Oracle's not really known to have a great culture. It's really not known to be a very great organization to work for. So then wouldn't it be possible that they they come in and bring the toxic culture with them? Um, isn't it possible that they bring all their empl- their kind of teammates and friends from that organization that'll continuously make um, dilute the culture at workday? These are all things to consider. Um, and overall, I think another important thing for the architect and builder leader is do they build an organization that is decentralized? Um, this reminds me of companies like Constellation Software, where you have this completely beautifully decentralized organization that adheres to the Dunbar 150. Um, it reminds me of Spotify and how they try to build this decentralized organization. It's a you know, does the company constantly focus on fighting bureaucracy, constantly focus on pushing decision-making and autonomy down to the lowest level? Because talented people don't like working in centralized co- companies, period. You'll never be able to attract top-tier talent that way. So then you'll just have a mediocre company. So yeah, that's imagine create that. Criteria number five, proven and stable business model. Um, I'll just kind of read a couple quotes from Michael. He says... They prefer to invest in businesses with high gross and cash flow, free cash flow margins, recurring revenues, and low capital expenditure requirements. They've passed on investing in real estate brokerage sites Zillow and Redfin because they are shifting from their traditional high-margin businesses to the capital-intensive, low-margin businesses of buying homes. And so, yeah, that's kind of very easily put. Um, the way he looks at companies is... You know the the traditional kind of compounder playbook in in one way it's the high gross margins and I think high gross margins are actually considered to be very um, I don't know what what the right word is it's it's relatively predictable when a business has above I think like fifty percent gross margins it's relatively predictable that they'll be able to maintain that over a long period of time and a commonality in for companies that become 100 baggers in Chris Mayer's book, 100 baggers, is that they have gross margins exceeding 50%. So that's something uh, I think that ties well with Michael's criteria and uh, Chris Mayer's, which is also another investor that I like uh, following. And recurring revenue, yeah, the predictability is something 
uh, Michael deems to be quite important. Um, like examples he's used in the past when I read about his past interviews are when he talks about Brookfield and how they have all these long-term contracts and you know how they run dams. Like these are just utility businesses that are just so predictable. Um, and yeah, like in terms of the business model itself and the stability, Michael also talks about the importance of organic growth, like organic growth over M and A any day. Um, as well as a company that has low debt, because you know, if a company wastes money, wastes uh, free cash flow, paying down a low return investment like debt, then it takes away from its ability to compound value further. Um, so you definitely want a business that can continue to just churn free cash flow, and a business that can churn free cash flow means that it's actually profitable, uh, in one sense, like you can actually make money, um, at least in the core business, like. Amazon had AWS, which generated tons of free cash flow, and it was bankrolling all the other projects. Same for Shopify. It had the core subscription business that was positive free cash flow, and it was bankrolling the other parts of the um, business itself. So as long as there is um, the core part that makes money, and there is a path to scale and continuously expand free cash flow margins, it works. That's different from a company like Uber or Lyft, which doesn't seem to really have a path for positive free cash flow, as from what I'm aware of. They're still banking on hitting scale, but Michael focuses on companies that already generate free cash flow and have the ability to continuously scale further. Uh, item six, Compounder, aka ability to invest free cash flow back into the business at rates of return in excess of 20%. As Michael says, they invest in compounding machines, which we define as prov- proven and growing businesses strongly positioned for decades of growth. And I think this is a big thing, decades of growth. Um, that means you need a company that has a long reinvestment runway with tons of growth prospects. And I think that's something to really consider. And that's something I've been constantly trying to implement in my own checklist as well when I think about, you know, can this company become a 10-bagger? What does that look like? Does it seem like the market can really support that? And, you know, just once again, a recency bias. If I think about the company I talked about yesterday, if I compare Workday and Spotify, I think Spotify has a better chance of becoming a 10-bagger than Workday does. I think the reinvestment um, runway and growth prospects of Spotify are much greater than Workday's, although they have pretty similar enterprise value. I think those would be kind of how I would compare um, their ability to just return in excess of 20%. So yeah, this has, this is honestly a really fun um, letter for me to read. There's, I still have this whole list of articles relating to Michael's um, investment style that I want to look into further. But today that's the kind of key learning I wanted to share. I hope this was insightful for you. And if you're the kind of investor that has a human capital tilt, like I do, then this is a really cool one and michael if you ever listen to this or if somebody listening is connected to you i would love to have you on the podcast and i'd love to pick your brain on how you actually look at analyzing management and culture and leaders but until then um thanks for listening to omd daily and i'll have you back here again tomorrow right so see you tomorrow take care